the off limits in many Christian circles. The words predestined and chosen. And uh, what a wonderful reality that God has chosen a people before the foundation of the world. And it is that very same people that He gives to the Son in a covenant of grace. And Jesus comes and He dies for that people, His sheep, and He purchases for them all of the blessings that God lavishes upon them in Christ. And then, those people for whom the Father chose, those people for whom the Son dies, that's the same people the Holy Spirit applies that redemptive work to in time in the new birth, and the same people that God preserves unto glory. So we're going to look at that this morning in the sermon as well. We see a consistent salvation. A salvation that begins with the sovereign grace of God, and therefore it ends with the sovereign grace of God. It ends with God choosing us for salvation, and it ends with God preserving us for salvation. It is a Trinitarian sovereign salvation. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that salvation is not up to me, not up to my own ingenuity, my own decisions. In fact, I make plenty of bad decisions every day. But God, in His infinite wisdom, is the one who's in control of salvation, and I'm glad about that. Let's go now in prayer. Let's thank Him for that gift of salvation. And then let's open the Word of God together this morning. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, Lord, I give thanks to You for Your saints here at Christ as King. Your people. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Those who have, by grace, put their trust in the Savior and who display the reality of their faith by their faithfulness to You. Lord, I give thanks to You for every grace that You've planted within their hearts. Their faith, their love, their obedience. All of those things are the fruits of Your grace at work within them. And I'm so grateful for this little flock, this little church that You are redeeming and sanctifying and using in the world to turn it upside down for Your glory. And I pray, O God, that You would give grace and peace to these dear saints, that it would come to them through God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, that You would give them the grace that they need to grow in grace and to maintain their relationship with the Lord and to persevere to the end, that the peace that surpasses all comprehension would be theirs in Christ. Lord, we thank You for the salvation that is ours. You chose us before the foundation of the world. You redeemed us by Your Son. You sealed us with Your Spirit. It is a Trinitarian salvation, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed and sanctified by the Spirit. And the salvation that since it is of God, it cannot fail. Because You work all things after the counsel of Your own will. And we are so grateful that none of Your purposes can be thwarted. And therefore, our salvation, which is the purpose of God, cannot be thwarted. No one can bring a charge against us. No one can undo what God has done. No one can undo the justification that has been brought to us by grace. So we thank You for that, Lord. And now I pray that You would be with us as we open up Your Word, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know what is the hope of our calling we would know what is the riches of a glorious inheritance that is ours as the saints. And we would comprehend the surpassing greatness of the power that is at work in us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, 
that exalted Him to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the power that raised us up to spiritual life and regeneration, that that same power is still operative in us today so that we can walk in obedience to Your Word and fulfill Your purpose in our life. So Lord, I pray that we would comprehend that power, and in that power today, we would obey the truth that we hear this morning for Your glory. We pray these things to that end. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me once again to 1 John 5. 1 John 5. And for this morning, we return to the verses that we've been considering for several weeks now. And that is verses 13 through 21. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. This is, as you know, the final passage in 1 John. We're finally there. This is the last portion here in our long 11-month study of this little epistle. And this passage really serves as Paul's post, or John's postscript, or his conclusion to the letter. John has been relentlessly driving home the theme of assurance for five chapters now. That's his theme, Christian assurance. And he wrote the letter to provide believers in Asia Minor with confidence in their salvation that they might know that they are saved. And now he comes to the end of the letter and he re-emphasizes many of the same familiar truths one final time. So let's read the text together once again. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. John writes, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. <clears throat> This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. <clears throat> if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Christianity is a religion of absolutes. A religion of absolutes. A religion of certainty. As believers, we possess absolute truth. There are several things that we can be certain about as God's children, things that we can know with absolute certainty. And John emphasizes that over and over again throughout the letter by using the word know over 30 times in the epistle. If there's one thing you should get from a study of 1 John, it's that there are things that you can absolutely know as a Christian. The world may tell you that there's no truth, that you can't know the truth, that epistemologically we can never arrive at the truth. But John 
tells us that we can. We can know the truth. So he uses that word know, a form of the word, over 30 times in the letter. For example, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. We can know that we have come to know Him. We can know that we are saved by our obedience to His commandments. In chapter 2, verse 18, John wrote, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. In other words, we can know that we are in the end times. You hear people say that a lot, don't you? We are. We can know it because of the proliferation of Antichrist. We know that we're in the last hour. In chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, John added, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. We know the truth. In fact, not only can we know the truth, we do know the truth, if you're a true Christian. Chapter 2, verse 29 If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. We can know that true believers are marked by the practice of righteousness, obedience to the Word of God. Chapter 3, verse 2. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. That's what we know. As believers, we know that though we sin today, though we struggle with iniquity today, there's coming a day in which we will be perfectly like Christ. And we know that with absolute certainty. Chapter 3, verse 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. So we know the purpose for which Christ came into the world. He came to take away sin's penalty and sin's power, and we know that. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. You can know you're saved when you look at your life and you see the love of God reflected from you to others. Chapter 3, verse 16. We know by love by this that He laid down His life for us. We know what love is. The world doesn't. You can figure that out by watching their romance movies. They don't know what love is. They think it's a fuzzy feeling or a silly word we throw around, but that's not love. We know love is selfless, sacrificial service, and we know that because of the example of our Savior. Chapter 4, verse 6. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We can know the difference between the Holy Spirit and demonic spirits. We can discern between the two. And we could go on and on and on with this. This is just a sample list. But all of that to say, as Christians, there are things that you can know. We can have absolute certainty about the truth. And to further emphasize that here in the passage, John uses a form of the word know seven times in these nine verses. He also uses a synonym once in verse 14, the word confidence. This is what John is telling us. There are things that you can be confident about as a Christian. There are things that you can know with certainty as a Christian. And in this passage, John lists five of them. Five, what we could call Christian absolutes. Absolute truths that as Christians, we can know 
with certainty. We've already considered the first two. The first absolute was eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. Verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and the Council of Trent taught, as believers, we can come to have absolute confidence and assurance of salvation. We can know that we are saved. Those who pass the test of 1 John, the doctrinal test, the moral test, the social test, those who believe the truth about Christ and the Gospel, those who obey the commandments of God, those who love their neighbor as Christ loved them, they can know they have eternal life. So that's the first absolute, eternal life. The second absolute that we saw last time was answered prayer. Answered prayer. We can know that God hears and answers our prayers. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request of which we have asked from Him. That's amazing, isn't it? The God of heaven who created the universe, who has all of the resources of heaven and earth at His disposal, says that He will answer your prayers. With one condition. You ask according to His will. Those who pray consistent with the will of God can be confident that God will hear and answer their prayer. But all of that then brings us to number three, absolute number three. And this is what we're going to focus on this morning. Number three, eternal security. Eternal security. We can know that God keeps us. And we see that in verses 16 through 18. I introduced these verses to you two weeks ago just to kind of give us some context. But this morning we're going to work through them with specific detail. So verses 16 through 18, in these verses, John makes a transition. He transitions from prayer to the security of the believer. And the key to that transition is John's discussion of the sin leading to death. We talked extensively about that sin last time. We know what it is now. And now that we have an understanding of what that sin is, we can work through these verses and grasp exactly what John is saying to us. So look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. So John here provides two categories of sin. And by the way, it's not mortal and non-mortal sin. It's forgiven and unforgiven sin. That's essentially what it is. There's the sin not leading to death, and there's a sin leading to death. We should make requests for one, but not for the other. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. So first of all, notice the one said to commit this sin. Whatever the sin is, notice who it is that commits it. It's a brother. That is to say, it's a believer, a professing Christian. One who is claiming to be a part of the family and household of God. It is a brother or sister in Christ. 
So John says, if anyone sees his brother, anyone here referring to a believer, if any believer sees another believer committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. He shall ask. The Greek text here, literally you could read this way, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin not leading to death, or not unto death, that's what the Greek preposition pros there, translated leading to in my translation, has the idea of moving towards something. This is a sin that does not necessarily move toward and lead to an end in death. I told you last time that all sin deserves death, but not all sin ends in death. All sin earns death, but not all sin leads to death. For the believer, his sin ends in forgiveness and grace and eternal life and salvation. But for the non-believer, his sin ends in eternal death. So basically then, here's what John is saying. John is saying if you, as a Christian, see another Christian committing any sin that's not leading to death, and that's any sin a Christian commits, because no sin a true Christian commits leads to death, then you should pray for that believer. If you see a Christian committing a sin, you should pray for him. So the question then is, what is the sin, or better yet, what are the sins that do not lead to death? The answer is very simple. It is any sin that is forgiven. Any sin that is repented of, confessed, and covered by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, as a Christian, our sin doesn't end in death because it led Christ to death. Our sin doesn't end in death because it's forgiven by God in Christ. He took our punishment. And therefore, no sin that a true Christian commits could ever end in spiritual or eternal death. He bore God's wrath for us. He took our place. He did not die merely as an example or as a martyr or as an expression of love. He died as a bleeding substitute who took our punishment, paid the penalty of the law that we broke, and therefore our sin will not end in death. Because He died our death. So John says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So what is it that we're asking? You see a fellow Christian in sin, what do you pray for? What is your request? Well, it seems likely from the context that we're asking for God to forgive this believer. We're asking for him to forgive his sin, to grant him repentance and forgiveness and restoration, and to give him some sort of life. What does he mean by give him life? It's possible that what he means here is that this is a believer who sinned and now he's kind of lost the joy of his salvation, the fullness of his uh, salvation life. Not that he loses salvation itself. But when we sin, our conscience is pricked. It's brought under severe conviction. We forfeit joy. And this is a prayer for God to restore him to the fullness of that life, the fullness of that communion with God, the fullness of that joy. It's possible that's what he means. But I think what you have here is an example of a believer who has sinned. God has responded to that believer's sin with chastisement. This is a Christian who has come under the disciplining hand of God. And that discipline has led the believer to some sickness, some illness perhaps even to the point of death. And John is saying, if you pray for that believer to be forgiven and healed, God will heal him 
and restore him to the fullness of his health and physical life. That's what I think John is saying. And to help us better understand this passage, turn with me for just a moment to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. It's just a few books to the left. We've got 2 Peter, 1 Peter, then the book of James. And here in James 5, James is describing for us several conditions of life that a believer may find himself in at any point. And he's prescribing some applications for each condition. And in chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, he specifically focuses on the condition of sickness. Sickness. James 5, starting in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? And this is often the case, isn't it? We get sick, don't we? We deal with allergies, we deal with bacterial infections, viruses, COVID-19. We deal with sicknesses. And you can't just blow the wind of God on it and expect it to go away, right? False teacher Kenneth Copeland found that out the hard way. You can't just expect it to go away. We get sick. We're not prosperity preachers. We don't buy into the lie of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. That's damning heresy. It pr promises you that which it doesn't deliver. It promises you long, healthy life, and yet people in it die and wonder if they don't have enough faith. That's not what we're talking about. No matter how much you name it and claim it as a Christian, you are going to get sick. In fact, you can look at the memes on Facebook of some of these faith healers and you'll notice their fingers are bandaged up. And one of the memes says, never trust a faith healer with glasses and a band-aid. Seems like common sense, doesn't it? You're going to get sick. It's the inevitable reality of life in a fallen world. So what do you do when you get sick? James tells us right here in verse 14. James 5, verse 14. Then he must call for the elders of the church. By the way, the elders of the church is the pastors of the church. The word elder and pastor is a synonymous term in the New Testament. Every church is to be led by, ideally, a plurality of pastors. He must call for the pastors of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, in the ancient world, oil was often used for medical purposes. It had some natural healing remedies in it. Uh, we learn that from men like Josephus, a historian, and, and other places in the New Testament. But it's also possible that the oil served as kind of a symbol of the healing power of the Holy Spirit. But in any case, the elders are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So this is a prayer for healing. For healing. Now we know that God doesn't always answer our prayers when we ask Him to heal someone. We understand that. But we know that He may, if it's according to His will, as verse 14 said. And so when you pray for someone who's sick, you should say, Lord, if it's Your will, please heal so-and-so for the praise of Your own glory. But Your will be done. Not My will, but Your will be done. Be done. So that seems to deal with sickness and healing in a general sense. However, in the immediate context, I think there's a specific focus on someone who is sick specifically because of sin. This is a sickness directly related to sin. Now, not every time 
a believer is sick is it due to sin, by the way. We get sick for a multiplicity of reasons. In the Gospels, the disciples said, why was this man born blind? Because he sinned or his parents sinned, and Jesus said neither, so that the glory of God could be displayed through the healing of the man. So not every time a believer is sick or struck with some affliction or illness is it chastening for sin. But at times it can be. It can be. Sometimes God will discipline a believer by afflicting him with severe illness. We think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? Paul says, Many among you are weak and sick because they had taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They had been disciplined by God. They had been judged by the Lord. That becomes an example of God chastening a believer for his sin. So at times, God may do that. God may afflict a believer with some illness and a punishment for his sin. And if, I think what John and James are saying is if that person is sick because of sin and they call for the elders of the church and they have a repentant heart and the elders pray for God to forgive him and heal him and restore him, that God will do just that. God will provide healing, provide forgiveness, and provide restoration. And I think that's exactly what John is saying as well back in our text. Back to 1 John 5 now. John is saying if you see a believer... Committing a sin not leading to death, that is any sin forgiven by Christ. If you see a fellow believer committing a sin, you should pray and ask God to forgive him and heal him and restore him, assuming he's sick because of his sin. And God, what will He do? God will for him give life. God will answer your prayer. God will forgive that believer. So we know from the rest of Scripture that when we see a believer in sin, we should go to that believer personally and privately and confront him, call him to repent, seek to restore him in a spirit of gentleness, Paul tells the Galatians. We should do that, but we should also go to God in prayer. We don't go to others and gossip. We go to God and pray. We pray for this believer. And if we do that, God says He'll answer the prayer. God will give him life. And again, give him life. It could mean, again, it could mean that God kind of restores that believer to the fullness of his salvation, the fullness of his joy. We have a fresh apprehension of our forgiveness when we repent and confess our sins, and and then God kind of restores us to life. But I think that John is also meaning here that God, if you're sick because of sin and you repent and others pray for you, that God will restore you to the fullness of your physical life, heal you and forgive your sin. Now, again, this is not the prosperity gospel. That's not what we're talking about. God does not guarantee you health, wealth, and prosperity. He doesn't. Paul had to tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. Why didn't Paul just go heal him? Because that was not always God's plan. As a believer, you may get sick and you may die. In fact, it is very likely that eventually you will die from some illness. What a sober reality, isn't it? We can say that. We can sit here right now and say, you know what, I will probably die from an illness. That's just the reality. But I'm convinced that what James is saying and what John is saying is if you see a believer sick, potentially even to the point of death, because of sin, pray, ask for forgiveness, God will answer. It's a wonderful promise from God. That becomes one example of praying according to God's will. If a brother commits a sin not leading to death, you ask for forgiveness, God will answer it. 
But this is only the case for those who commit sin not leading to death. On the other hand, John adds, there is a sin leading to death. And we know what that sin is now, right? From our study last time. It is a full and final, irrevocable rejection of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. It is a total, complete apostasy. It is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Insulting the Spirit of grace. Rejecting the Spirit's testimony to Christ in the Gospel. That is the sin that leads to ultimate spiritual and eternal death. It was a sin committed by the Gnostic heretics, who according to chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. That's what it is. It's to be on the brink of salvation, hear the Gospel, profess faith, be under the ministry of the Word, the ministry of the Spirit, and the presence of true believers come so close and then to totally renounce your faith, Hebrews says there's no way to renew that one to repent. That's the unforgivable sin. And John says, I do not say that you should make requests for this. This is hard language, isn't it? Very strange. Now notice that he doesn't specifically say don't pray for this. He simply says, I do not say you should make requests for this. Because it's a futile request. It's a request that God will not answer. If someone commits the sin leading to death, your prayers will be ineffectual for that person. God will not answer that. It's not according to His will. Remember the context. If we ask anything according to His will, He answers us. This then becomes an example of either praying according to God's will or praying contrary to God's will. John is illustrating the principle here. If you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, you should pray. That's God's will. If you see a person, not a brother, but a person who commits a sin leading to death, you should not pray. That's not God's will. If a person has fully and finally rejected Jesus Christ and drifted into final and complete apostasy, blasphemed the Spirit, committed the unforgivable sin that leads to death, you should not pray. Your prayers will not work. To which we respond, John, are you really saying that there are people that I shouldn't pray for? John's answer, yes. Yes. This isn't just a principle in the New Testament, by the way. Jeremiah 7.16, just as one example, God commanded Jeremiah not to pray for Israel. He says, as for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Sober words. An example here of God commanding an Old Testament prophet not to pray for a people who had sinned so severely against the Lord that He would not hear their prayers. Even our Lord Himself, right? I mean, what are we called to be like as Christians? Be like who? Jesus, right? We understand the implications of that are a lot wider than a lot of people think. We understand He also made a whip of cords and flipped some tables, but He also didn't pray for everybody. Jesus doesn't pray for everybody. We know that He intercedes for us. He is, as John said back in chapter 2, the advocate that we have with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our divine lawyer who's never lost a case, who pleads our innocence in heaven. But He also prayed for us when He was on earth. And He didn't pray for everyone. 
In John chapter 17, verse 9, Jesus said, speaking to the Father in prayer, I ask on their behalf, speaking of the disciples, and then of course He prayed for those who would believe in Him through their word. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom You've given Me, for they are Yours. In other words, Jesus prayed for the elect, those whom the Father had given Him. He didn't pray for the non-elect. He didn't pray for the reprobate. Those destined for destruction and damnation. And so in the same way, of course, we don't know who the elect and the non-elect are. Spurgeon said, if God would have stamped an E on the back of the elect, I'd limit my ministry to them. But because I don't know who they are, I preach the gospel to every creature. So we don't know who they are. But the principle is this. Just like Jesus, just like Jeremiah, there are people we should pray for and there are people that we shouldn't pray for. If you have discovered that someone has committed the unforgivable sin, you shouldn't pray for that person. But that brings us to a question, doesn't it? How? How do I know if someone has committed that sin? Practically speaking, how do I know if I should avoid praying for someone? Well, that's a pretty difficult question to answer, isn't it? I'm not sure I have all the answers. I think it's possible that John's original readers had more context and probably had a better understanding of the issue than we might today. I'm not sure if we can grasp it as well as they did. But I do think we can make some general applications here. Some general applications. First of all, you know for certain that anyone who dies in a state of unbelief perishes. Anyone who dies in a state of unbelief goes to hell. You shouldn't pray for that person. It doesn't help. You can't pray them out of hell. You can't pray them into heaven. So we're not to make prayers to or for the dead. Getting baptized for the dead like the Mormons do, praying for the dead, none of those things work. And there's no purgatory for people to go to. You can't pray them out of there either because they either go to heaven or hell. So one application we can definitely take away is we do not pray for those who've died. Their eternal fate is sealed. Instead, we should seek to lead them to salvation in life. and death, it's too late. But secondly, this is a, an application I think we can make. The second one is this. It seems likely from Scripture that if someone claims to be a believer, he comes into the church, sits under the ministry of the Word, seems to be the real deal, taste of the heavenly gift by sampling it, coming to church, being among other believers, only to fully and finally apostatize from the faith, renounce Christ, and go back to the world. It seems like that person has committed the unforgivable sin according to Scripture. That person has gone to the point of no return, hardened his heart by the deceitfulness of sin, sinned away the day of grace. Hebrews 6.6 6 says that, again, it's impossible to restore such a one to repentance. So someone who's committed a sin like the heretics in John's day, they went out from us because they were not of us. It seems like Scripture would have us not to pray for them. But I think we have to use caution here. We have to use caution. Unless you know for certain that a person has committed the unforgivable sin, it's probably best to use caution and pray for that person. It's best to err on the side of caution. It's not as if you've committed some heinous sin if you pray for them. It's just that God's not going to answer your prayer if you pray for someone who's committed that sin. And so unless you know for certain that someone's committed the unforgivable sin, which it's very hard to figure that out, I think, then you should pray for that person. But John's main point here, I think, that we can take away in terms of application 
is that we should pray for our fellow believers. I think that's the major thrust. You should pray and intercede to God on behalf of other Christians, especially when they fall into sin. You should pray for God to forgive their sin, grant them repentance, and restore them to the fullness of their salvation and joy. And if they're sick, pray for healing and restoration there as well. So then John adds in verse 17. It gets a little clearer now. Now we can move into clearer water. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. Here again, John provides us with a definition of sin. He said back in chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is lawlessness. Here he says that sin is unrighteousness, or that all unrighteousness is sin. The word unrighteousness translates the word adekia, adekia, it's two words in the Greek. It's the word ah, which is the Greek negative, the alpha primitive. It negates what comes afterwards. If you see the alpha, the a in Greek, you know it negates the next word. So it comes from ah, and then it comes from dike. Dike, a word that means righteousness or justice. So literally then, the word means no righteousness. No justice. The word dike, righteousness, means to do what is right. So the word unrighteousness means the opposite. It's to do what is wrong. It's to deviate from what is right. The word is defined as a violation of God's standards. Violating God's standards. That's what sin is. It is a violation of God's law, God's rules, God's standards. In fact, the word sin itself, the Greek word hamartia, it's a military term meaning to miss the mark. What's the mark missed in sin? The law of God. Sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. It's to live as if though there is no law. As if you are the law. So John's not downplaying sin when he says there's a sin not leading to death. He's not downplaying sin. All sin is serious. All sin is an act and expression of rebellion against God. Sin is not simply oopsie-daisy or merely a mistake. Sin is cosmic treason and it is worthy and earns eternal death. But the amazing thing is, though all sin deserves death, John adds, not all sin ends in death. Not every sinner gets what he deserves. Isn't that good news? If you got what you deserve today, if God paid you today for what you've earned today, where would you go? Hell. Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most famous sermons on American soil, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he says, it's a wonder that you didn't fall into hell last night. It's a miracle. You, a dust ball from the ground, have offended God, have rebelled against Him, and yet God doesn't damn you as you deserve. What grace. So you should be amazed when John adds at the end of verse 17, and there is a sin not leading to death. Repeating what he had said in verse 16. Amazing! That all sin is an infinite offense to an infinitely holy God, and yet it doesn't all end in death. The believer's sin is forgiven, pardoned, blotted out, and therefore does not end in death, but ends in salvation and eternal life. 
But you need to understand this morning that that is only true for the believer. That's only true for the genuine Christian. On the other hand, if you're not a Christian today, your sins are currently unforgiven. If you're not a believer, you are on a path to eternal death, the broad road to destruction. You need to come to Christ today. You need to repent, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, flee to Him for life and forgiveness. He's the only one who died for sinners. He's the only one who took the wrath of God that we deserve, took our punishment, bore our sin, rose again from the dead, and He alone gives life and forgiveness and salvation to those who come to Him. So if you're not a believer today, come to Christ. And then none of your sin will end in death. Because He'll blot it out. It's amazing. All sin deserves death, but it won't all end there because God forgives. God cleanses. God washes the believer. John's already made that point, hasn't he? You go back to chapter 1, verse 9. What did he say? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to do what? Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God cleanses us from sin so it doesn't end in death. Romans chapter 5, verses 20-21 through 21 says this, As sin reigned in death, that's the horrific thing, the history of the world is filled with death, isn't it? Everyone in this room has family members and friends that we loved who have gone before us. Sin seemingly reigns as a king and its expression is death. But the good news is, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A glorious state. Sin and death no longer reigns over us. Now grace reigns over us and the expression is life in Christ Jesus. So the believer can rejoice that his sin is the kind of sin that does not lead to death. But then in verse 18, John really gets to his point here. This is the heart of these three verses. This is the third absolute truth that you can be certain about. John says, we know, there's that word again, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Yet again, we think, wait a minute, John, what are you saying here? It seems like the opposite is true. We know that those born of God do still sin, don't they? We're born of God, and we sinned this morning on the way to church. So what does John mean here? What is John saying? Clearly, John is not saying that Christians are sinless. He's not saying that Christians never sin. We know that because it would contradict what he said himself back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, present tense, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John knows that we have sin. John knew he had sin. We just read Romans chapter 7 the other night for a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And there we saw the great Apostle Paul lament that even he did not do the things he wanted but did the things he didn't want to do. Even he has evil present in him. So we know that John's not saying those born of God are sinless. Then what is he saying? What is he saying? Well, there are two possibilities. Two possibilities. 
Possibility number one, John is saying that those who are born of God do not sin habitually. Habitually. They do not go on and continue in sin as the habitual course and pattern of their lives. One piece of evidence in favor of that position is the fact that the word sin here is a present tense verb. The text could literally be rendered, no one born of God goes on sinning. No one born of God goes on sinning as the unbroken pattern of his life. Because, as we saw back in Romans 6 a few weeks ago, the believer is freed from sin and enslaved to God. The power of sin in his life is broken and replaced with a pattern of righteousness. So we no longer live in sin if we're Christians. John, no doubt, made that point back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9, he or verse 8 he said, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse 9 he says, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. If you're a believer, you have the life of God, the nature of God, the seed of God, a new heart, and that keeps you from living in habitual sin. So John has no doubt made that point throughout the letter. No one born of God lives in sin. But I think John's meaning something else here. I think John's emphasis is different this time. There's a second possibility. The second possibility is that what John means here, when he says no one who no one born of God sins, is that he means this. No one who is born of God sins the sin leading to death. That's what I think John is saying. No one who is born of God sins, that is, the sin leading to death. That's the context. John's been talking about this sin that leads to death. And just in case his readers think, oh, wait a minute, have I committed that sin? Am I guilty of that sin? John wants to reassure them that that's not the case. That they have not, nor can they commit that sin because they are born of God. No one born of God blasphemes the Spirit. No true Christian can commit the unforgivable sin. Those who do commit the sin, we know from 1 John 2.19 that they were never of us to begin with, he said. That's why they commit the sin. They were never saved. True believers cannot commit the sin unto death. And there's a reason for that. Verse 18, the rest of it tells us why. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. He who is born of God keeps him. Now who is that? Who's the one born of God that keeps us from defection? The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is the Son of God. And He, the essential Son of God, keeps all of the adopted and regenerated sons of God from the sin that leads to death. He keeps us. The word keeps translates the Greek word terao. terao. It means to watch over, to guard, to protect. It means to persevere or to stand firm. We cannot commit the sin leading to death because Jesus watches over us. He protects us. He keeps us. He preserves us. We're leaning on the everlasting arms, aren't we? That's why our salvation is secure. I knew there was a reason he didn't like that song. We call this, by the way, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. 
persevere, or better yet, the preservation of the saints. Also known as the doctrine of eternal security. John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. The good news is you can't. Because God keeps you. God preserves you. He preserves us, therefore we persevere. He keeps us, therefore we continue. He holds us, and so we endure. In Jude, verse 24, Jude describes God as the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. Wow, God is able to do that. It's glorious. God is able to keep you and present you perfect before Him. As Psalm 97.10 says, He preserves the souls of His godly ones. That's why. If you want to know why you're still a Christian today, that's why. Not because you're a genius. Not because you're smarter than the world. It's because He preserves the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. That's exactly what John is saying here, isn't it? Because Christ keeps us, the end of verse 18 adds, the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. Now we understand that that doesn't mean that Satan never tempts us, doesn't mean Satan never discourages us, never influences us. Certainly he does. Often we fall prey to his temptations. But what that means is, Satan cannot touch you if you're a believer in the sense of bringing you to ruin. In the sense of devouring you, to borrow the language of 1 Peter chapter 5. He doesn't touch you so as to lead you to final deception and defection and therefore destruction and death. He cannot destroy you because you are kept safely in the arms of the Savior. <coughs> Here's an encouraging one. Jesus said, this is my Father's will. I've come down from heaven to do the will of the One who sent me. This is my Father's will. That out of all of those He's given me, I lose none, but raise them up on the last day. Do you know this? If you lose your salvation, Jesus failed. He failed to do the will of God. Do you think He can do that? I don't think so. And therefore, your salvation is secure. Your salvation is secure as Jesus' faithfulness to keep His promises. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If God started a work in you, God will complete that work. Unlike us, so we start things and we don't finish them often, that's not the case with God. He starts it and He finishes it. Salvation begins with God and it ends with God. It begins with sovereign grace, it ends with sovereign grace. He chose us from eternity past for salvation. He preserves us unto the end, unto glorification. You see, if salvation began with your free will, it could end with your free will. But if it begins with sovereign grace, it ends with sovereign grace. That's the good news. Salvation is of the Lord. Romans chapter 8 describes the believer's security in terms of what we might call the golden chain of redemption. You need to remember this. Theologians call it the golden chain of redemption. It's a passage in Romans chapter 8, specifically verse 30. There Paul says, And these whom He predestined, He also called. Who did He call? The ones He predestined. And these whom He called, He also justified. Who does He justify? The ones He calls. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. 
Who does he glorify? The ones he predestines, calls, and justifies. You see any break there in the chain? Any gaps in the link? It's the golden chain of redemption. Salvation is secure, not because of your faithfulness, but His faithfulness. Not your will, but His grace. Not your plan, but His purpose. Therefore, salvation is secure. Therefore, Paul adds in Romans 8.39, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. In John chapter 10, Jesus speaking of a sheep that is His elect, His people, He says there, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. That's why you're secure. We have eternal life, will never perish, Nothing can snatch us out of His hand because we're held securely in the omnipotent hand of Christ, who is Himself God. We're secure because He who is born of God keeps us. He holds us fast. That's wonderful news, isn't it? God keeps us. If you belong to Christ, God secures you. God holds you. In a world of uncertainty, in a world of absurdity, in a world of confusion, a world of darkness, you can know with certainty that God keeps you. That God holds you fast. So may we continue in the faith, knowing that it's Him who keeps us. May we persevere in Christ, knowing it's He who preserves us. And may we rest in His preserving grace. So that's absolute number three. We can be certain about eternal life. We can be certain about answered prayer. And we can be certain about eternal security. We can know that we are saved. We can know that God answers our prayers. And we can know that God keeps us. And we'll look at the final two absolutes next week. There's more to come. This is enough to overwhelm us, but there's more to come. God's blessings just continue to flow. But for now, brothers and sisters, may we rest in His sovereign, preserving grace for our comfort and for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed as we think about the fact that there are sins that do not lead to death. We have violated the justice of the Holy Judge. We have broken every law there is for us to break. If not in deed, then certainly in word and in thought. Lord, what sin is there that we have not committed? Our hearts are often wondering. Your Word tells us even if we look with lust, we commit adultery in our heart. If we hate our brother, we're murderers. If we call our brother a fool and insult him, cutting cutting us off in traffic and call him a name, we're guilty enough to go to hell. It is a wonder that we did not fall into hell last night. It is a wonder that any of us are here this morning hearing the sound of the thunder and the sound of the rain fall as Your glory and creation manifest itself. It is amazing. It is nothing but sheer grace. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that You hold us and keep us. May You preserve Your people, fulfill Your promises, and bring glory to Your name, we pray. Amen.